I'm Danny Walker and you're listening to Radio Oedipus. I'm back after a short holiday. Feeling fresh, I've cleansed my palate and I'm now hungry and thirsty for more. My first stop is to the wild city of Nijmegen. Known for being the oldest city in the Netherlands and for the Roman ruins that still form part of the city's landscape, but also for its green and sustainable living and of course its welcoming inhabitants. My guests on today's show are Doe Bongers from Basic Theory Ferments and also Emile van der Stack from De Nouwinkel. Previous guest Doe invited me down to show me what she's been fermenting in her kitchen recently and also to introduce me to a city I still knew very little about. Therefore, I was very happy that she introduced me to Emile, who is a chef, a restaurateur and activist behind recent Michelin star winning restaurant De Nouwinkel. The conversation takes place in Doe's kitchen and we dive into the creativity and discovery that Emile does and together with Doe we discuss what wild flavours are still yet to be discovered. All that on today's radio, Oedipus. Uh, just uh, introduce yourself, Doe. Hey, I'm Doe. I am the owner of Basic Theory. Yes. And yourself, Emile, can you say hello? Hi, I'm Emile. I'm a lazy chef. <laughs> a lazy chef? What yeah. do you mean by that, lazy chef? <laughs> Nothing to do. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, also, when he and his team works, he's really good at just like doing this and then looking and nodding like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> doing just chef point. stuff. Yeah, so exactly. Mindful, uh, mindful chef <laughs> yeah. right there, I think. Supervision, that's what they call it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you both used to being creative in the, in the kitchen, but what about podcasts? Is this the first uh, in, the, in the kitchen? In this kitchen, it is, yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. Okay, okay well, I'm glad to, uh, glad to take that title. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'll start the conversation by saying I was recommended to visit the Nouvinkel about a year ago um, by the Sommier Oedipus Basvissa as a place to just get outstanding vegetable-forward food because I'm a proud vegetarian myself. I was really looking forward to it. And then, unfortunately, the, the situation we're in now with COVID happened, so... I'm still waiting hungrily for my opportunity uh, to enjoy it. So my first question was maybe, am I able to make a reservation uh, today? Or <laughs> yeah, You can make a reservation, but I cannot promise. So there's always a disclaimer that lockdowns take longer than you think. So um, you're more than welcome, of course. Yeah, yeah. Us. I'll probably have to wait a little bit longer now because uh, you've been awarded a Michelin star. And just as importantly, the green Michelin star. Uh, for chefs who have chosen a more sustainable practice in uh, gastronomy. So congratulations for that, uh, Thank you. But uh, yeah, maybe winning a Michelin star uh, during a time where restaurants are closed, surely that is more difficult. Maybe we should decide here that it should be worth double the amount of uh, points (laughs) during a pandemic. Yeah, well, you never know how Michelin works. They are very, uh, uh, keep it as a secret, but... um, at least they say they follow you for a couple of years. So in that sense, um, it's pretty um, fair to assume that they have been visiting our restaurant for a couple of times in the last couple of years. So in that sense, it's a normal year. They yeah. can still judge like they always do. How do you detect uh, a Michelin uh, star? What would well, you call them? Uh, what would you call them? Inspector. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there. Well, most of them are from Belgium, so they have this funny Belgium accent. Um, and they come alone, um, and they make a reservation for two, and then they come alone, which never happens. <laughs> so uh, It's a bit annoying, actually. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's all it's like a play. You do do they look like night. extra serious as well? 
Well, they make they notes and everything. That's what I see in my head. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of a, like people think, like in the movies, that they sit down and drop their fork. If you don't get it quick enough, you lose your Michelin star, but it's not that way. But they used to have these older inspectors, and they, they were really conservative. So when they were at the, our restaurant, they, yeah, how do you say, they had a shit night. <laughs> <laughs> they were not happy, not lux no luxury products, uh, like f crazy people doing service. Uh, and now they have some younger inspectors that are actually really enthusiastic okay. about all kinds of um, evolution that's going on in gastronomy. So that was a eye open for myself as well. Yeah, I can imagine. They're, I can actually, imagine. they're actually people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're actually <laughs> human. Yeah, they actually need human. to eat as well. They yeah. smile. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they seem nice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, also Doe, thank you very much for housing us in your kitchen. Um, you're going to introduce us to some of the things you've been working on as well. And thank you for coming back on my podcast. It means a lot. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I finally got you over to Nijmegen. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here <laughs> on such a sunny day as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, Emil, how would you describe your role at the restaurant? Is it part chef, but also part farmer? What, how would you describe it? Well, I'm the chef, but there's also a kitchen chef who does all the daily work and makes sure all the processes go well. And I'm also the entrepreneur, so I have to do the emails and mm. do the administration, all that stuff that comes along when mm. you're an entrepreneur. And mm. uh, at the same time, I'm also thinking constantly about what direction is this restaurant moving? Uh, are we still doing something of which we think it works better than what we used to do mm -hmm. we're always trying to evolve um that takes some of my time and i have to come up with new ideas together with the team in the kitchen well i have a lot of different jobs at the same time and i'm also interested in farming mm -hmm. and I'm sometimes a little bit of an activist as well trying to get the message out mm -hmm. uh, so many many roles uh, to play on yeah. one day yeah and we spoke on the when we spoke on the phone uh, uh, a couple of weeks back. You were actually in the the food forest. I think I had to stop our conversation because I heard this beautiful bird sound going on, and I was like, "Where are you right now?" Did like, you hear I mean, the owl? I didn't, but I, I heard distinct birds uh, bird song. I couldn't detect whether it was an owl or not. <laughs> <laughs> but the big part of the identity of the restaurant is this nature aspect, and I guess the produce that you go in the Rudsel Boss. Forgive my pronunciation, but the food forest. So uh, as a kid, I was always told to kind of watch out for poison berries. So eating from a food forest is a bit of a red flag in my mind. Can you explain a little bit about what the food forest is like? Yes, we have to stay away from the association of some sort of fairy tale kind of forest. Yeah. You run around with a little basket. It's actually a revolutionary way of doing agriculture uh, based on perennial plants after making a proper design planting these plants in relationship to each other after you've done that there's nothing else to do you just have to wait it will mimic a forest system which means every year it will grow in volume the soil will get every year more fertile and there's no input needed mm -hmm. and one downside is that you have to wait it takes at least 10 years to get your first crops but then again you will continue harvesting for hundreds and hundreds of years because when climax trees like Japanese walnut and chestnut come in production they actually last for hundreds and chestnut even for thousands of years mm. here so that's a different approach to agriculture that is all about 
uh, one-year crops. You start with an empty field in spring. Mm. You need a lot of input. You have to plow, you have to seed, you have to use poison, you have to use uh, fertilizer and big machines that run on gas. And then at the end of the season, mm. you end up with an empty field again. This is not how nature works. No. It actually destroys our land. Um, so the first time I was in the food forest six years ago, uh, that super simple and clever idea got me in like 30 seconds. I was like a total change and shift of paradigm. I was like, it was so clear for me, this is the direction. The other side is as a chef, I can use more than 350 edible crops. And if I find ways of applying all these different plants in my kitchen, in the long run, people will demand more of this. That's the assumption. And we need more food for us. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that was kind of what I found from doing the homework. I mentioned at the beginning, I, I haven't been able to visit the restaurant, but do my homework and looking at your social media and, and your website, the images specifically taken from the forest is you can find all different kinds of vegetables, herbs, weeds that I've never seen before in my life, only ever read about or it's got some association looking at the quince, I think there was Japanese quince, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. social media. And it does have this kind of like childlike feeling to it of discovery and uh, be, having this mystical thing. Is there, can you give some examples of what else grows there and, and kind of, can you plan what grows there? You say that you do put seeds in or is, are you still discovering new things there? Uh, we're actually still discovering new things because they come in production now. For example, the pow pow, yeah. which is the only tropical fruit that grows in our climate zone. It's from Northern America and has a custard kind of filling that mm. has a flavor similar to mango and banana. And that also grows in a food forest. Um, but you have to keep in mind, food forest in the Netherlands, we are in climate zone seven. So you can look around all over the planet in climate zone seven. Mm for crops that are edible and we can plant them here if it, they can withstand winters with minus 20 you will almost forget but we can still have that in the netherlands minus 20 if it can withstand that actually that's uh, that's the biggest thing you need to keep in mind and you can plant it and you can test it and that means we get plants from china northern china korea japan uh, or even chile northern mm. america canada and they all grow in our climate zone. So this is like a multicultural plant society with over 350 different species, mm. all edible. And many of them I have never heard of before, like Chinese mahogany, Korean mountain asparagus. Um, we have berries from Siberia, uh, lemons, true lemons from Mongolia that withstand harsh mm. winters. Um, Japanese skins, but also Chinese skins, mm. um, Shipova pears that is a hybrid between two other plants that could occur in the 17th century in an uh, orchid in the Elsass okay. and brings these beautiful bunches of little pears that have a flavor similar to marzipan. Wow. So that's true magic. Yeah, and uh, um, a massive inspiration for maybe both you guys who are maybe creative chefs or, or what, whatever we would describe your roles. But who... Who decides what grows there then? This is actually a hobby of Wouter van Eck, uh, the initiator that uh, started all this in uh, 2009. 
and he's a bit crazy about plants. So his food forest is actually the oldest of the mainland of Europe and is also like literally a testing ground, a, tasting, a place to taste and to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So that's why he has this large collection, like 350, even more plants. If you look at it as a way of doing agriculture in the future, you should make a selection maybe of 60. Mm. Um, so it's all up to him and his um, him being crazy about plants, mm. knowing so much about them, and wanting to know so much more that mm. this collection exists. Mm -hmm. It's so much fun to go there as well because Emil too and Bouter they turn into these like two boys on a playground almost when they like give you a good tour around and you get all these things in your mouth that you're like what's the name of this and how does it taste and there was this nut that like tasted like bananas and chocolate or something and there was all these crazy new flavors so right. it's an amazing place to go as well yeah, yeah and there's sounds... beavers and there's owls and there's all this life as well that just goes around it's beautiful yeah you, you mentioned uh, that there is kind of downsides to that in that serving it in a restaurant maybe people just want more and more and more but how much does grow there and is it open for everyone to visit it's not open for everyone to visit but there are some tours throughout the year although because of this lockdown uh, Mauta does not do any tours at the moment um, so um yeah, it's actually a field like any other field in that sense. It's agriculture, so it's not uh, it's, it's not meant to, to go there on your own mm -hmm. and walk around. Mm -hmm. If you do so, about well, it gets really angry. Yeah, you have really strict paths because there's stuff growing everywhere that you don't even see or you planted seeds somewhere. So even when we're harvesting juice from the birches, it's like, you go through this path and it's just, uh, yeah. it's pretty strict. There so. are pathways then. It's not just like this... Uh, wild zone where you're just kind of fighting through different bits of shrubbery there are pathways there's a structure yeah. and <laughs> with a reason because you do not want compaction when you walk through the forest you will compact the soil which doesn't really help yeah mm -hmm. okay. so that's why you have to stick to the to the paths okay stick to the path and then thinking about it uh, now with your chef hat on rather than activist or, or farmer hat on how do you develop new recipes for the restaurant? What's kind of the starting point? Is it finding something new? Uh, sometimes it's the ingredient. Yeah. We have an ingredient we never worked with before, so you start investigating. Or it's a technique that we read about, like, for example, the Japanese kitchen is full of inspiration when it comes of, to, uh, to using plants. So it's either a technique or it's a way of presenting food, a certain way of a certain technique that is a starting point. Um, because at the end you have to figure out a formula where, where it all comes together, like flavor, story, concepts, presentation, technique. Mm. Uh, can we reproduce it on a larger scale? Because sometimes we do these crazy stuff where we can actually only make one dish because it's too complex. So it all has to come together yeah, to right. and you have to figure it out. It's a nice puzzle. Yeah, I was going to... My I wanted to follow on that and say, what are the kind of difficulties? Is there ever an ingredient that you've kind of just struggled to put it in some form framework for a recipe? Yeah, what what was so amazing when we were in the food forest one day, uh, harvesting Chinese mahogany, beautiful leaves, uh, with a flavor quite similar to roasted onions. Mm. But to be able to harvest it, we had to nut the tree, like we chop it so it doesn't grow too big, otherwise, you would kill yourself probably but doing that not only the flavors in the leaves but the aroma came out with cutting these branches so it was 
an eye opener. We was, I was thinking like, what if we we use this wood of this tree uh, the same way as we would use um, um, the bones of a beaver, for example, like yeah. making it into a broth. Uh, so that was the starting point of a long search, finding a way to not come up with something bitter. Uh, and we ended up, after figuring it out, with a broth with a flavor quite similar to chicken broth, made out of wood of a tree. Ah. How bizarre, eh? And this is, <laughs> I mean, a lot of stuff we do fails dramatically. We're world champion in failing, but if something <laughs> succeeds like this, ah, you can have fun with it for years. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. We didn't tell the Chinese yet. We should actually, because they're still <laughs> eating only the leaves. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> they will hack us mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> this idea of uh, seasonality and locality really seem like core values for what the the new Vinkle does. Do you find it easy to reflect the seasons on your menus? Yes, it's quite easy. What we do, we make four menus a year, and these menus the work as a frame. So like the techniques, the main products, those is, that are all set. And in detail, the menu will evolve with the seasons. Mm-hmm. So when, for example, the flower of the horseradish is available, it's a season that lasts only 10 days. But we yeah. will t- we'll choose one of these dishes, we'll add it, or we replace one component for this. And in that sense, the, the dishes evolve along with the seasons. Mm-hmm. But the framework stands for uh, three months. Mm-hmm. So we're in early spring. What are you excited for? Ramson, of course. It's coming now, wild garlic. Eh? Um, and the first shoots, I'm not familiar with the word in English, but pimpernote. It's a plant that originates from the Netherlands, actually produces uh, two little nuts at the end of the season in a bag. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of work to harvest. But we recently discovered that when you eat the shoots, the first shoots, and the first uh, flowers have this amazing flavor of um, of green peas a little bit. So it's wow. even better maybe than asparagus. So this is a first vegetable in the season that I'm really looking forward to using in the kitchen. Yeah, I was going to say, white asparagus is the one thing that comes to mind when thinking about uh, Dutch agriculture in this time of year. Mm-hmm. And you've not even mentioned it. No, it's, <laughs> it's too obvious. <laughs> so... How did you how did you land on this direction for the restaurant? Well, it was in our DNA already ten years ago, working mainly with plants, um, and and not so much with meat and fish. We we radicalized throughout the years, of course, but after meeting Wouter six years ago, mm. it went uh, more clearly in one direction, mm. um, and that made it also a bit more activist because I knew from that moment. Everything we do on the plate uh, revolves. Everything revolves around food. Like all the big challenges we face as, as mankind, like climate crisis or the loss of biodiversity, uh, the changing of our landscape, our health, all comes down to what is on the plate. So, in other words, we better start looking in, for a way of eating that helps us. Uh, solve the, all these uh, all these problems that we face mm-hmm. and we can actually do that so that is how, um, how the evolution of the new winkle went for the last 10 years mm. was how was the beginning was it 
being this activist and you wanted to kind of show this message did were people conforming straight away or were they difficult no it was we were i mean we were so naive at day one we just okay we're going to start a restaurant okay we have no money i don't care we start a restaurant anyway <laughs> and then okay what do we do with marketing well we open the door if the door is open the people walk in <laughs> uh, that didn't happen. Did was, there was all there was the plan. I mean, the plan was: I like this. I like this restaurant. I want to eat here. Yeah. If I want to eat here, there's probably there probably more people who want yeah, to eat yeah, here. Yeah. That, that was our that was our, our marketing study. But nothing happened. I mean, we would have gone bankrupt. I think if we uh, in six months easily. Yeah. It was really bad. But we were not aware of it. For us, it was like okay, this is going the right direction. Yeah. We had eight guests. It was a good Saturday. <laughs> Perfect. It was six last week, so this this is, this is a nice uh, achievement. But it was not so it was not so good. But luckily enough, after three months, the most um, influential culinary journalist of the Netherlands came to eat, and he wrote this amazing review. Uh, it said, uh, "I had a dream," as last words, and it started out as a dream of a discovery, and he wrote about. As a um, journalist, you're always looking for being the first to discover something that nobody else discovered before. And it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. truly touched by uh, an amazing evening in the restaurant. So that from one day to another made the restaurant fully booked for five months in a row. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, they gave me chills the way you said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Doe, you're, you're a proud uh, knife maidener. What would you... What Almost. Would you, uh, <laughs> you're trying. How would, how, yeah, but how would you call someone who's from Nijmegen? I don't know. Anyway. Nijmegener. But yeah, even though you spent some time uh, over uh, in the UK and in Scotland, how have you seen it? How have you seen the restaurant developed from the early days uh, up to kind of now? Because I know you're collaborating from time to time with Emil. How have you kind of seen the, the restaurant develop? Well, I've, um, I think I ate at the New Winkle uh, three or four times. But that was when they were at their old location. Uh, I have seen their new location um, because we uh, like to brainstorm together, but I haven't eaten there yet because of the lockdown, because I came we'll back to, to Nijmegen for the adventure and then everything <laughs> kind of closed. Um, but it's, um, it's really great to go there a little bit more to like taste new stuff that we made or uh, like talking to your chefs as well and talking about uh, fermenting sodas. So, uh, yeah, Emil has been a really big supporter since day one that I came back to Nijmegen and started the fermented food company. So, it's um, yeah, it's been great uh, to work together a little bit more. I'm really yeah. excited for everything to open back up again and actually see the new kitchen flourish and go uh, like experience that dream a little bit again. Yeah, sure. There's a, there was a quote that I uh, read while doing my homework on the on the restaurant that I think is from the Michelin star website. So forgive me if uh, <laughs> this makes your kind of uh, skin itchy or something. But it says, Emil van der Stark is an enthusiastic champion of botanical gastronomy in which plants take center stage. This city restaurant with its theatrically visible kitchen in the heart of Nijmegen tells a story with each dish. The chef's boundless creativity is inexhaustible and the new vinkel leaves no one indifferent. What, what does it mean by this? Maybe you can back me up, though, because you've maybe been, but what is this theatrical stage in the middle of the restaurant talking about? Is this also part of the activism that you're trying to do, trying to show the customers what you're doing with 
plant-based food? Since the lockdown, I've been really privileged to work more with the people who work for the Nieuwe Winkel. And I think one of the big charms over there is that everybody who works there loves it. And uh, they uh, love working there so much. They're coming here to help, but they want to learn a lot more. And they're all... They have a really big heart for the place as well. So when you go to eat there, you really see that everybody there is making the best that they can be that day. And uh, they're all happy when they go home as well. So that's normally in really high class restaurants. You can really notice any stress in kitchens or any like discomfort. And over here, everybody's so it's like a machine. Everything's Mm. solid and everybody's really having a good time. And that's also part of the great experience. Mm. Was this a conscious choice then, Emil, to have like the, the kitchen as a center stage in the restaurant? Yeah, definitely, because each and every dish comes with a little story. And who is better to tell the story than the chef who made it? So, um, And we wanted to be as transparent as possible because we were in the previous location. We were behind a wall with a little window so you could see some heads moving. But now people actually see all the attention that goes into the work and the chefs bring the food to the table themselves. So we have the most open kitchen I ever worked in because you can work, walk straight from the restaurant into the kitchen and vice versa. So mm. that really adds to the experience. And when you're proud of your work, it's of course it's nice to go to the table and tell about it and people mm. appreciate it. So that's the theatrical part that <laughs> Michelin is talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this botanical gastronomy, uh, you mentioned it before we sat down recording as well. I want to I want to hear your take on that. What do you mean by botanical gastronomy? Well, it combines obviously two uh, fields of expertise. On one side, people who know a lot about plants. Um, I'm not sure, but most of them probably are not the best chefs. And on the other hand, you have chefs and their kitchen. The gastronomy is all about flavor, but they actually never learn in school anything about uh, the plant kingdom. So when you combine these two, you get a whole new playing field and Mm. a lot of new information that needs to be investigated. So that's what botanical gastronomy is about, finding new ways, new plants, uh, new approaches, uh, ways of using them, getting new flavors uh, to to make a plant-based kitchen uh, into a success. Mm. Because if we just base it on what we find year-round in the supermarket, what dominates the supermarket shelves, no, it's maybe 12 mm. different crops. We're not going to be able to make a proper menu out of that. So we need so much more input. Mm. And that's where the knowledge of plants comes in very handy. Mm. Is it more effort um, working with plants than compared to with meat or fish? Because I, I read, I watched one another one of your YouTube videos where it said something along the lines of plants Turning plants into ambition give you as much satisfaction that you would maybe take for granted than meat or fish, and that takes more effort. I was trying to understand what you meant by more effort. Well, well, you take a piece of meat, for example, and you roast it uh, for a couple of minutes on both sides, you have a beautiful result. I'll I'll admit it. It's nice and tasty. It's fairly easy. Mm -hmm. If you want to achieve the same intensity, the same flavor, and the same... Uh, feeling of uh, satisfaction with plants, you have to bring in some more effort. Mm. Like you have to think about what kind of techniques I'm going to use. The the whole process takes longer. Maybe you have to dry it 
or roast it or put it on the barbecue for a long time or ferment it, of course, to get that richness of flavor. But that is a universal thing. It's not only that you can achieve it with roasting meat, you can also achieve it with vegetables, but it takes more time and more mm. effort. Uh, but that's a beautiful challenge, especially for a chef, I would say, to use your creativity, your ideas um, in a more challenging way, because it's definitely not challenging to make meat in proper foods. It's mm. easy. Everybody can do that. Mm. So that's why there's a difference between preparing meat and fish dishes compared to dishes that mainly uh, use plants. Mm. I guess then now being recognized by Michelin, it really does show that menus where the plants take center stage is really direction of what food will be in the future. Everyone will be either eating no or, or certainly less meat. Um, do you think you've had to work harder than other restaurants in order to kind of achieve this accolade from these critics? Um, yeah, actually, I was in the assumption that we would never get a Michelin star. I just based it on the selection they make every year, which is, in my opinion, a bit conservative. It's always the same type of restaurants using luxury products. You can actually make a bingo card, go there, and you find all the ingredients and <laughs> have a fun night. But um, putting us on that list, I could not imagine that would ever happen. So that they come our direction is actually quite promising and feels very special. But we're still the first ones mm. with a, this radical approach that find a way to this uh, this, this accolade of Michelin. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was really surprised. I was definitely not expecting that. Mm. I think it, what, the, what was the first thing that you like thought when you saw it or heard it? Were you like, is this a joke? Really? That was definitely the first thing. <laughs> is it the first of April yet? What's happening? No, because this year... April Fool's is coming up. That was the weirdest experience because last year an article came out about Michelin with the head of the article was Michelin never leaks. And this year they actually used one of those fancy data leaks to get the information <laughs> out. So in the morning on Saturday knowing that the whole event would be on Monday. A chef from Amsterdam called me, have you heard? Congratulations, all kinds of things he said. I was like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, you're Michelin star. Oh, okay, fair enough. What are you talking about? And then <laughs> getting a screenshot, a journalist who actually discovered it called me and he said he had confirmation from Michelin that there was a problem with the, with the website, blah, blah, blah. And then the information happened to be authentic. And from there on, it went crazy. Yeah. I mean, but actually, it took me, I think, two days to, to uh, yeah, sitting here, actually, well. yeah. <laughs> sitting here today, the day after yeah. Yeah. it's being officially announced, starts making sense to me. Like, OK, this is actually mm. this actually happens. I, I was really surprised. Yeah, I bet it makes you extra excited to open up your doors as well now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, we're already, already fully yeah. booked. Yeah. Like I had a really hard time trying to go eat there with the lockdown, and now it's just gonna. I think we can reserve now for like in a year. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it settled. <laughs> well, people have this idea of our restaurant that you cannot book a table at all, and it takes months in advance. And definitely in the week weekend days, it takes two months in advance, maybe. But on a weekday, there's definitely enough nice. room for people to come by and uh, have a nice evening. Uh, but this Michelin star will put a little bit more pressure on that, I, I guess. We'll have to see. Yeah, for sure. 
Now, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about a collaboration, basically, because we're sat in your kitchen, though. You have been kind enough to invite us, and I know you two collaborate a little bit. And maybe I wanted to ask what other techniques you kind of use in your kitchen. Do you, do you also use fermentation? Like, dough is a big part of... Uh, big part of what she does as well and then what kind of role does fermentation work in your kitchen uh, it's important yeah. like we talked about earlier getting the same intensity of flavor and texture with vegetables instead of meat mm. you definitely need fermentation for the complexity of uh, flavors yeah. and we started out i think eight years ago with our first lacto fermented asparagus mm. and we were all looking at it and nobody dare to eat it. Who are like, oh shit, this is this it's is bubbling. this it's bubbling, <laughs> uh, sour. It's, uh, that's definitely not good. Um, so we, I have to admit, we boil it first. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, we were afraid to die. <laughs> yeah, but and that was our first step in that direction. But soon we discovered more and more. We got more information after reading some books, and uh, we really working with lacto fermented products a lot. As, a, as an extra addition in any dish. Mm. At first, we were very proud of the result and we mentioned it at tables. And then after a while, I said, okay, don't mention it because it's in every dish. It's becoming a running gag. So uh, from the lacto-fermentation, we went to um, uh, using it in our non-alcoholic uh, pairing that we do with every dish or mm. drink pairing. So um, we went working with kefir and kombuchas. Um, and the most recent step we took is... Uh, working with his uh, fungus cultures like uh, Asparilla zosea and uh, Rhizopus to make tempeh and koji. And from there on, we went into the world of misos and shoyu and uh, and it went that crazy from there. Was. Yeah, <laughs> and... Uh, when you're falling, you'll never get out. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you start, you can you cannot stop. But the, the nice thing about the collaboration with Doe is that she takes it to a new level by knowing each and every step in the process and she can adapt and she can actually... Um, get the same result every time that's something for us in the kitchen is very difficult we just put a jar on a shelf and walk away and mm -hmm. 10 days later we come back but here it's all about temperature control getting the, just the right um, uh, circumstances for a result that you want in, uh, in on forehand so um, and also the scale on which dough works helps us a lot because we have crazy ideas we make a couple of jars of vacuum bags and then we have to change the plan again because uh, we don't have the space to store it or to produce it. And now with uh, collaborating with dough helps us a lot to do special fermentations menu long. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's also part of that locality aspect, isn't it? Because it's also uh, spreading to the partners that you want to work with and building a community. Because uh, we've mentioned dough, but I also know that uh, your house beer is with Nabel, right? With and Matthias is a, a friend of uh, the New Vinkel. He actually mentioned it when I interviewed him as well. Yeah, we work closely together. And we make our house beer every season, a new beer. Mm. Our beer sommelier knows a lot about uh, beers, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and we use ingredients mostly from the food forest to make these really special uh, beers. So there's definitely a sort of an ecosystem going on here, mm. um, which I'm actually quite proud of because some of our uh, staff members uh, took their own path, starting new businesses. Mm. Uh, for example, the baker here, who's baking his beautiful bread, used to work for us as well. Mm. Um, so this helps each other. It makes a stronger um, a network of um, producers on a large, on a small scale, locally or in a, um, 
focusing on local produce and that ecosystem is growing mm. which is so nice to uh, to be part of for sure i think i've recognized the same in amsterdam as well yeah it's really cool yeah and everybody really helps each other mm. because Helping the new Winkel makes me discover all these amazing new flavor combinations and I help them with bigger scale science. Mm. And with Naval this Friday, I'm blending one of my old beers that I made there when I was still mm. doing mixed fermentation. So it's a really nice, like safe circle of growing, um, like healthy and creativity. And mm. just, just this, like this jar of, um, of flavors that we all share in, in, in in a really cool way that's never ending yeah sure beer uh was maybe the next point i want to go on to because thinking about it in the restaurant world we spoke a bit about like uh um the future of what like fine dining and gastronomy but beer when you think about it compared to wine it's still maybe fighting for its place in the fine dining high restaurant kind of world however breweries like navel and particular uh kind of lambic beers in maybe all of our opinion here, have these elegances that could be comparable to wine. Well, what's your view on that? I well, mean, beer pairing beer with food is actually makes more sense than pairing wine because in beer you can use so many more ingredients, so you can really tweak a beer yeah. uh, to work even better with the food. Uh, when wine only <laughs> exists of one ingredient, mm. and, and you have to work from there, so. Beer gives a whole new set of opportunities mm. to uh, to pair with uh, with food. So um, when you order the drink pairing with us, we always give the disclaimer: this is not only wine, because people are still in the assumption that you get wine when mm. you order a pairing. It's half wine, it's half beer, and even sometimes a non-alcoholic beverage as well. Um, so for us, it's totally normal. But I, I I'm aware that many colleagues in the field still. <laughs> think of beer as something uh, with less status than, than wine. Yeah, and especially with Naval, they mostly focus on like 4% ABV beers, lower than actually like normal beer. So, but that the flavor that they get out of that is it's incredible. And that's why it's also, I think, better with food because you can drink more of it and remember more of it. Yeah, yeah, you can <laughs> In the end. have a nicer day after <laughs> yeah. the restaurant. Yeah, for sure. What are the breweries or, or drink makers, for that matter, do you do you enjoy, Emil? Well, I actually don't drink too much. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so I'm not really into that matter. I stick to my uh, field of expertise, food. Yeah. Uh, but for sure, I like the beers of Naval yeah. because of their freshness and their acidity mm. uh, and the special ingredients they use sourced locally. Yeah. But um, I don't have too much knowledge about the field. But your your because I've spoken to many different kind of creative uh, flavor makers where it, where it does extend, like uh, Sander, my colleague, had brewer, he's, he's a head brewer, but also loves tea and, and all things like this and has an opinion on that. What, does your kind of creative knowledge extend to other things or do you just stick to the edibles? No, I know my place in the world and we have these amazing people working for us with <laughs> such a, they have so much knowledge about wine or beer or, or whiskey alcohol, as well or whiskey yeah. we even have a special sommelier i don't know a lot about whiskey so i, I don't dare uh discussing uh, with them about these drinks now for me it's an effort on itself making these dishes figuring out new approaches to food um i never came to studying more even though i like to mm. drink of course 
a drink. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I kind of meant story. outside of uh, like your work, just enjoying uh, these flavors. But you would just maybe stick to something basic when it comes to drinking. Exactly. Uh, and let's we come to the beginning of this conversation. I'm actually quite lazy. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I like to enjoy a good drink, but yeah. I do not have the knowledge to uh, have a strong opinion about it. Yeah. Do you have any tips and recommendations, though, of good drinks makers in uh, Nijmegen? Well, there's a new... Um, actually, at Naval, uh, there's a new kombucha co- uh, company that just started, Wildbloei. Mm-hmm. And that's actually from an intern who used to brew beer at Naval. So that is kind of the same like um, yeah same funkiness <laughs> but then like really low on alcohol and he's just like just started just exploring balance a little bit and uh, I think that's really promising yeah and I hope that people who are listening you can actually find a, yourself a job in locally produced food industry <laughs> to say that way and you have a really nice life because it's mm-hmm. such a nice way to fill your days finding out new flavors uh, connecting with new people totally different than um, what they call these bullshit jobs that can stop existing and nobody will notice so hopefully more and more people will either work in agriculture or in producing proper food out of uh, proper produce so uh, let it be an inspirational um, message at the end yeah yeah do you is it maybe i do do have a couple of thoughts like fine dining or restaurant culture is still kind of a little bit excess, inaccessible to to all, but you're you've just kind of said to encourage people to get into the world of more agriculture. There, yep. but do you still find that there are maybe inaccessibilities within uh, the world that we're both in? Now, with every craft, it takes years and years to master it. So yeah, that's sort of a a, a, a thing you have to really be determined mm. to come to a certain level, but. You can start any day of the week doing that mm. uh, and just accept it takes time. And this morning in the newspaper, I read a, an interview and somebody said, like, nobody ever died and said at the last words, I made so much money and I'm so happy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's about other things. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And, that's, um, uh, and that happens here in Nijmegen, this little ecosystem with like-minded people uh, doing their best to make uh, proper products and work together and collaborate. So... Uh, that's very inspiring, and that makes sense to fill your days with, uh, with with stuff like this. Thanks for listening to Radio Oedipus. You'll be happy to know that I have now been able to book my table at De Nouveau and pending its reopening, I look forward to finally trying Emile's fantastic food. A special thanks for him to finding the time to stop for a chat and a huge thanks for Doe for being my sidekick and guide to Nijmegen. Check out her latest products by heading to her website and social media pages by searching Basic Theory Ferments. I've been your host, Danny Walker, and tune in next time for more explorations into the culture of beer. 